The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, you breathed trillions of stars into existence. Any one of those stars would melt us where we stand if we were just fractionally closer to it. You breathe them, you tell them where to go, you've named them, and you didn't break a sweat. Nothing is too difficult, nothing is too much for the power of your might. And yet, Father, you have bid us to come near. Despite your infinite power and your unending holiness and our sin, you have bid us to come near. There's only one answer for how that can work, and his name is Christ Jesus. There's only one way that this all-powerful God would not be a terror to us. And it's only in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Father, that you help us to see that now, to see what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, to see what he did when he brought us near to you. I pray as we prepare to come to this table, perhaps for the first time in some of our lives, we will unashamedly, unbashfully, with clean consciences, draw near with anticipation that you would meet us here. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through verse 22. This is the holy and inerrant sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, amen. Maybe may So as I 
briefly expressed during my prayer this morning. It is, I've got a singular hope for us this morning. Got one goal, one prayer for us as a people this morning, and that is that you would know that this morning, maybe for the first time ever, you would know a closeness and communion with God like never before. That you would, in the words of Hebrews 4.16, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now let, me, let me be clear what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about feeling close to God. I've known a lot of people that felt really, really close to God. You go into the average bar on a Saturday night, you'll find a lot of people that feel really, really close to God. I once had a man in my Sunday school class years ago that told me that anytime he smoked marijuana, he felt closer to God. Feelings lie. Feelings are fickle. Feelings can't be trusted. I used to be a big golfer. Some of you know that. And one of the recurring mantras in golf was, feel is not real. There were things about a golf swing that felt perfect, and then you looked at them on camera and went, that looks like I'm swinging a folding lawn chair. What just happened? So it is with our spiritual life. Feel is not real. We can't trust our emotions. We can't trust our feelings. Let me be clear. I'd love for you to feel close to God. I would love for you to feel an intimacy and a, and a communion with God, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what you know. That's what I want for us this morning, for you to know a closeness and communion with God like you've never felt. Frankly, that's why for so many people, this whole thing feels like a, like a pipe dream, like a, like a wing in a prayer, like, like, like pixie dust, because they don't know the basis for their hope. They don't know how they're supposed to feel close to God. They don't know how they're supposed to come near to God. And so my hope this morning is that by the power of the word of God and the working of his spirit, that you would come to know to trust, to believe in Christ Jesus just how near you have been brought to God. And we, we do this, again, with anticipation of coming together to the Lord's table. My hope is that you would, perhaps for the first time, draw near with full assurance, not because of what you feel, but because of what you know, knowing that he bids you to come here. He, he welcomes you here, that he promises life and peace and joy and glory at this table. That he promises here the fullness of all that he is for you in Christ. I want you to know this. Maybe the feelings come, maybe they don't. But by the word of God and the working of his spirit, I want you to know it. I want you to know that it's not based on your worthiness. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on a promise that someday you're going to do better. That in Christ Jesus, the God of the universe reaches out his hand and says to you, come, draw near. This table is for you. Come sit at my table and eat. That I want you to know that what is represented in this table is his commitment to uphold his covenant to you. It's his commitment to redeem you once and for all fully in the end of time even as we come and trust in that promise. It's his commitment of love and mercy toward you. 
I want you to know that the sacrifice has already been made. That there's no further sacrifice that is needed. That your job in this is simply to come and receive. To come in the name of Christ Jesus, trusting in him, and to rest in all that he is. There's no work here. There's no working for this supper. That much like the Apostle John in the upper room on that night when Jesus was betrayed, that you will find yourself, metaphorically, that you will find yourself leaning back against the breast of your Savior. Looking into his eyes and knowing that he has nothing for you but love and peace. I want you to know this. I want you to know it all. And I think that all of that is wrapped up in what we're studying this morning. You recall that we spent our last three weeks together considering these first two verses in the section we just read, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember that he began by talking about a thing made in flesh with hands. He was talking about the outward sign, the initiatory rite of the old covenant, the circumcision in flesh made by hands. Of course, meant to point us, as all signs do, meant to point us beyond themselves to a reality, namely the circumcision of the heart. He's saying, I want you to remember where you were at that time, horizontally, relationally alienated from the people of God, not bearing this mark in your flesh. He then went on to talk about what this looks like, this alienation, this far offness looks like, particularly with regards to God and his promises for us. He said that there is no reason for us as Gentiles, as those that were outside of the people of God, as those who were far off, there was nothing in us that caused us to look forward to the promise of a Messiah, of an anointed one, of a Christ, of a king who would come and redeem us and save us. You are without Christ. You are alienated from the commonwealth, cut off from the nation of Israel. You are an outsider amongst God's people. You're cut off from the covenants of promises because God had made those covenants, those promises through that covenant to a specific people. They weren't just generic promises to the whole of humanity. They were to his people, to those people on whom his love had fallen. You only of all the nations of the earth have I known. He's speaking to his people of Israel because we were outside of that nation, because we we're outside of that commonwealth. We had no place in these promises. Therefore, we were without hope. Because we were without God in the world. Hopelessness. That's what we spent the majority of our time last week talking about. Just as I said that feel is not real with regards to nearness to God, closeness to God. Likewise, it is not real with regards to hope. Some of the most hope-filled people we know should be finding themselves feeling hopeless. Because they're without hope and without God in the world. Cut off from his promises. But here we come in verse 13. But now, I did a search this week for the word but in the New Testament. I forget, it's like 300 times or something. It's all over the place, as you can imagine, a pretty common word. But I will tell you that some of the most powerful promises found in all of Scripture begin with the word but. But God, you are dead in sins. 
following the prince of the power of the air, doing the things that seemed right in your own eyes, following the passions and the desires of your mind and of your flesh, just like the rest of mankind, you were children of wrath but God. Beyond this, you were Gentiles cut off from the people and the promises of God, but now. Do you feel the weight? Many don't. It's not until we feel the weight of our hopelessness, until we feel the weight of our losses, it's the bad news that always has to come before the good news. You see, the but changes everything. If I'm staying the night at my friend's house and we're playing video games and we're eating pizza and my mom says, you can stay there for a while, but I'm coming to get you, that's bad news. I liked where I was and so the but calls me away from the thing that I desired. But when I find where I am to be death and hopelessness, but God, everything gets better. But God, but God showed up for Jonah as he was cast into the raging sea. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and he heard my voice. You see, the reason that Jonah cried out to the Lord, he stopped running from God was that he felt the weight of the waves and the wind and he sunk down and down and down and the seaweed entangled itself around him and he found himself at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. It's only there yet from the, that pit that I called out to the Lord, but God, and he heard me. I pray that you felt this. Now, I've told you over these last three weeks that you can't understand the desperate, hopeless estate that you were once in until you look back. In the middle of it, it's so hard to make any heads or tails of where you are or where you're headed. Again, I say many men who are as lost as lost can be, they feel close to God. They're filled with some sense of anticipation and hope that tomorrow will bring brighter days, but they have no basis for that. And it's only when the but God shows up and raises us up that we can then look backwards and see that's where I once was. That's why he says, remember, remember, remember for the sake of your own joy. Remember as a driver for your own worship. Remember for the glory of the grace of God. Remember where you once were. Remember, remember where you were. Verse 11 says at one time. He says here in verse 13, but now. You were once there, but now. I once was, but now I am. Then and now couldn't be any more different. Couldn't be any more different who I once was and who I am now. Where I once was and where I am now. Where I was once headed and where I'm headed now. But now. You must see the reversal of all the hopelessness that we've been covering. Those called the circumcision by those, excuse me, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision. This division between Jew and Gentile. What does he say in verse 14? The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile broken down. You see the way that God begins to work through all of these problems and all of these separations and all of these divisions and all of these things that drive us to hopelessness. He said that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 19 says, now we are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We see the way in which God is calling us together, building us as one, reconciling us to himself, but now. All contained in those two words. And they can all be summed up, more or less, in that statement, at one time, far off. All that we read, verse 11 and verse 12, how do you sum up what that means? To be without Christ, to be without hope, to be without God, to be alienated from the promises of God. How do you sum that up? You were far off, but now brought near. How? How has he brought you near? Why has he brought you near? He says it's all because we are in Christ Jesus. Now he said it there in verse 12 that you must remember at that time that you were separated from Christ. And I told you that Christ had not yet come. Clearly, he is speaking to Old Testament realities. And so the whole of humanity had not yet laid eyes upon the Christ. And he had not completed his work in the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. But he's speaking to the fact that there was no hope. There was no longing. There was no anticipation that a redeemer and a king would come for you. You did not have the oracles of God. You did not have the pictures and the shadows and the signs all pointing forward to the redeemer was coming. That the true anointed one, the great prophet, the great high priest, the one who would redeem us was coming. It was completely unbeknownst to you at that time. But Paul would go on to say to the young man, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, he would say that there was a grace that had been given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before you were even born. He says in this letter that we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. That there is a grace There is an election, there is a choosing, there is a setting apart. There is a selecting as saints in Christ Jesus that happens before the beginning of the world. And then at the appointed time, his son comes. And in him, we have redemption through his blood. Again, before you existed, before your grandparents existed. Not only chosen in Christ, redeemed by the power of his blood. So that even as we walk this earth, enemies of God, true children of wrath, separated, From the people of God, it was in the mind and will and purposes of him that we were already in Christ. So that then at the appointed time, the appointed time when the gospel came to your ears, you heard and believed. That's what he says in Ephesians 1.13. In him, this is in Christ. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All of that, all of that coming because you are found in Christ Jesus. But we might ask the question, why does he say in Christ and not on account of Christ? Because it's certainly true that all of these things come to us only on account of Christ. It is he who came and fulfilled all righteousness, all that love and law demanded. It is he that died a substitutionary, atoning death, taking down on himself the wrath that was due to us. It is only through his resurrection, his ascension, his reign at the right hand of the Father that any of these things come to us now. It's only in his sending of his Holy Spirit. It's all on account of Christ. It's all on account of what he has done that this comes to be true. Why then does he not say on account of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the benefit of Christ in cleansing his bride? Why does he say, in Christ? Well, surely by now you know the answer. This is the Apostle Paul's favorite term. The word Christian was not thrown around 
I think only three times you'll find that word used in scripture and most likely used in a derogatory term. As he says, you're a little Christ. People would, would mean this, it meant this as a shot across the bow. Apostle Paul, his most favorite term about himself as Christian is that he is in Christ. Because there's an intimacy and a vitality and a, a living union about being in Christ. <clears throat> like a body to a head. Like branches to a vine. I am nothing without my union to this one. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That the whole of the Christian experience the whole of this Christian life, the whole of our hope, is only found in being in Christ, a living and unbreakable union. It's closely bound together, again I say, as a body to a head or a branch to a vine. So intimate, so vital, that when, the, when Christ comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, as he's calling him to himself, it was there that he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Even as Saul had been there at the stoning of Stephen, even as Saul continued to persecute the church, he said, to persecute the church, to persecute one of those that is mine, is to persecute me. That is how intimately we are connected. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's not just believing in him, in him from some distance. It's not just keeping Jesus at arm's length and saying, yes, I believe in all that he has done. Now accrue it to my account. God won't let us do that. He says, no, you must be in him. Connected to him in union with him. That's the only way that any of these things happen. The only place of life and sustenance and all the rest. And it's the only place that we will find ourselves safe in the end of days. When the day of judgment comes and the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. Where will man be safe? It's only in one place. It's in Christ. God has placed us in Christ to preserve us from his own wrath. I pray that you see these images on Wednesday nights as we work through the Psalms together. How often are we told by the lips of David that he fled to a shelter? He fled into a place of, of safety and security. Either speaking about it like a cave in a mountain or sometimes like baby chicks under the mother hen's wing. That there's only one place that we're going to be safe on that day of judgment. That is in Christ, hidden in Christ. This is no new news to you though. This is all this is all review. The question I do want you to consider this morning is, what's the ultimate purpose of all this? To have been chosen and redeemed and sanctified and preserved and protected for that final day of judgment. What is all that for? What is the purpose of God placing us in Christ? According to Apostle Paul here in verse 13, it's because in Christ Jesus, God is taking people who are far off and he's bringing them near. This is very similar to what he has summed up for us in chapter 6. That God has raised us up with Christ. In Christ, we too were raised up. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God placed us in Christ to bring us near. How near? At his right hand in heaven today. How near? Into the heavenly places even now. Why? So he can bestow upon us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Riches that it will take an eternity to exhaust. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the most important thing. This is the whole essence of Christianity, and yet men almost never speak like this. What is the sum of Christianity? What is the sum of what Christ has come to do? 
to answer the question, to be the solution to the problem, how can sinful man come near to an infinitely holy God? Do you see how far different this is from cardboard testimonies? So many people, they take the whole of the Christian experience and they just turn it into these cardboard testimonies. I once was a drunk, but now I'm sober. Does God do such things? Of course. Absolutely. He does not leave us where we are. He sanctifies us. He changes us. He cleanses us. He makes us into a new creation by the working of his word. But that's not the whole of Christianity. That's not the sum of what Christ Jesus has come to do. If you want a cardboard testimony, it should say this. I once was far off from God. But now in Christ Jesus, I have been brought near. Again, I say, but how seldom do we think in these terms? Ask the average person, what did Christ Jesus come to do? And there's a number of right answers. Certainly, what did the Son of Man come to do? To destroy the works of the devil. To lay down his life that his father might be both just and the justifier of sinners. But he says here, 1 Peter 3.18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. A one-way rescue mission. Us hiding in Christ Jesus because of his atoning work, going with him in the resurrection to the right hand of the Father. I have come to take you to God. I've come to take you from far off into the very presence of God. Why is this necessary? Go back to the beginning of the book. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We read there in Genesis 3.8 that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he didn't, Moses doesn't really expound upon this all that much. And it seems to me that that's because this was not an extraordinary thing in that day. That Adam and Eve knew the presence of God walking in the garden with them. Perfect people in a perfect place and perfect communion with God. And yet what did they do? They sided with the enemy. They sided with the enemy and they doubted the goodness and the promises and the word of God. Therefore, verse 23, because of their sin, because they chose to side with the enemy, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God cast the man out. He chased him out of the garden, and there he placed one of his holy angels with a flaming sword swinging left and right to make certain that the man could not return to the presence of God. Cut off, alienated, sent out, sent far away. Is this not the ultimate picture of death? Is this not the picture that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? You who once were far off, you've been sent away because of your sin. And yet we see as the story continues to unfold that God continued on with man. Right there in the very beginning, making a promise that the seed of the woman, a promise that humanity would continue on, that the seed of this woman would crush the head of the serpent. There's this, this promise indicated here that God would continue on with man. Not because of anything worthy in man, man had blown it. But because of God's own character and his own covenants and his own promises, he would continue on. And, and we see as this story begins to unfold, we come to a man called Abraham. And God comes and makes these promises to this man, Abraham. He says to him, I will be your God. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. And we see this division start to draw sharper lines from this moment forward. That there are those who are close. That in Abraham, there are people who are near to God. 
Those who come from the lineage of Abraham, those are those who God has offered to come near. Psalm 148, 14 says that he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. And then the rest of the world, the rest of the nations, they're spoken of as those who are far off. Whether physically far off or not, we know that many of Israel's neighbors were right there on top of them physically. And yet we read in Deuteronomy 28, 49, that if the people do not obey the Lord, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. Sometimes physically far away, yes, but these are the peoples who are far away. So we see a division in the whole of humanity. There is a small people called Israel, these small people that for the sake of their father, Abraham, whom God has welcomed near. Despite their sin, despite their faithlessness, those are the ones who are welcomed near, while the rest of the world is spoken of those who are far off. And we know that God dwelled with the people of Israel. He says in Exodus 33, 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. After he called these people, no longer a family, but a nation, as he calls them out of slavery in Egypt, he says, my presence will go with you. You will see my presence. You will know my presence. I will go with you. And again, I say this isn't a matter of mere proximity. We know this in the way that we normally talk. I might look to Brian and say, Brian, are you close to David? And you might say, well, about six feet. No, dummy. Are you close? Is there a relationship? Is there an intimacy? Is there a communion? And we know that this was what was on Moses' heart because you remember he says to the Lord, God, don't send us if you won't go with us. If your presence won't come, for how will I and the people know that you are for us, that we have found your favor if you're not near to us, if your presence doesn't go with us? This is what it means for God to be your God. You're near and he goes with you. This is the whole point that the Apostle Paul was making all throughout verses 11 and 12. You were far off. You were alienated. You weren't of the people of Abraham. You were cut off and outside. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, with all these visible and tangible reminders. You remember the wall there that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of Israel. Remember the sign there that said that any Gentile, any foreigner that came through this gate, he would die and he would have only himself to blame. They had the la lacking the mark in their own flesh. All these visible, tangible, outternal, external signs. He says, you who once were far off, you have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I spent the whole of my time last week or the majority of my time last week talking about the reality that those who are children of Abraham are not children of the flesh, but children of promise. If Abraham was your father, you would do the things that Abraham did. Abraham believed in me. Galatians 3.9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of God. We can come near because we too belong to Abraham in faith. Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise that we too have bought, been brought near because we belong to Abraham, because we are people of the faith, because like Abraham, we have been brought in to Christ. But I want you to see how this goes so much further than that. I want you to see how the promises that God is making to us, that the promises that God is speaking to, to us through the Apostle Paul. This is not merely a statement that God brought us as near as Old Testament Israel. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt that what Paul is saying to us here is not merely, listen, God has made a way that you can now leave the court of Gentiles, go through the gate called beautiful, and now enter into the court of Israel. 
I want you to see how much better position we are in than we could have ever imagined. You see, there were ways where Gentiles could have come into the court of Israel. That's what it meant to become a proselyte. The, the, the pre, prefix in Greek, pros, means toward or near. It's a directional thing. A proselyte is one who has been brought near, one who has been brought close, one who has come toward God by joining himself to Israel through circumcision, through washing, through sacrifices. You become then a Jewish man. But we're talking about something so much more than this. And we see this, I think, most clearly if we go back to the way that God dealt with Israel. I want you to think specifically with regards to what he had to say to Moses after he called the people out of Egypt, after he had redeemed them from slavery. Remember why he had called them out, by the way. He had called them out that they could come and worship him, redeeming them long before they made any commitments, before they even had the law, much less upheld it. I want you to listen to the language that God uses in Exodus 19.4. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. To hear the beauty in the way that God speaks about his redemption, about his calling these people out of slavery. I bore you on eagle's wings, and what did I do with that? Did I just take you away from the danger? Did I just break you free from earthly chains? No, I brought you to myself. I brought you near. I welcomed you to myself. I want you to see the way that he speaks as past tense. This is a thing that's already happened. Just as in this morning's text, we have been brought near. It's a done deal accomplished in Christ Jesus. But I want you to see then the way that God interacts with these people that he has brought near. That he has born on eagle's wings and brought them out to himself. Just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, they gather there at Sinai. In Exodus 19.10, we read this. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to come up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why? Because God's presence was coming to dwell there. This became a holy mountain because there was something intrinsically holy about the mountain any more than there was something intrinsically holy about the land around the burning bush. No, this land is holy. This mountain is holy because God dwells here. He's made his presence known and he says, make sure that people don't even come close lest they touch it and they die. And we read then that God comes down upon this mountain like smoking fire and the billows go up and the voice of God booms out like a trumpet and the whole earth shakes. He says in verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down again and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Tell the people they can't come on the mountain. Tell the people they can't climb the mountain. Tell the people they can't even look lest they die. Why? Because they are sinful and I am holy. But you redeemed them, yes. But you carried them on eagle wings to yourself, yes. But they're the people who are close and all the nations are far, yes. Tell them don't touch the mountain or they'll die. We see how they're not yet restored to the Garden of Eden. They're not yet restored to this place of God walking in the coolness of evening with his people, communing with them face to face. That man does not have unmediated access to God, all because of their sin. And yet he's making a way. That's really the story of the whole Pentateuch. Again, I tell you, I think it's the story of the whole Bible. But the story of the whole Pentateuch is the God of the universe making a way for sinful men to commune with him. If you could just read it through this lens, so much of the book of Leviticus would finally make sense. 
The God of the universe coming to sinful men and saying, I will make a way for you to come near. I will make a way for you to approach me. Exodus 24, 1. Then God says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron. So we're starting to see this, this separation. Moses is the intermediary and Aaron is the, 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 the first high priest. He says, you come up and Nadab and Abihu, his sons, Aaron's sons who would serve in the priesthood, you come up and 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. So he says, the priests and the 70 elders, they can come up. They can touch the mountain that the ordinary folks cannot touch, but they must not come near. They must worship me from afar. Moses, this is verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up. So the people stay at the base of the mountain. They can't even touch it. The priests and the elders, they can come partway up the mountain, but they worship from afar, from afar. Only Moses can come up and commune with God like this. Are you starting to see shades of the tabernacle? You're starting to see pictures of the temple. You're starting to see the Holy of Holy and the court of priests and the court of Israel and the court of the Gentiles. You're starting to see the way God draws certain men near to him. Then God immediately does exactly that. He gives them the instructions for the tabernacle. And part of the instructions about what's to happen in this tabernacle, you probably remember, Exodus 26, 31. First of all, he says that the tabernacle is meant to be oriented to the east. Which direction did God send Adam and Eve from the garden? Out to the east. So that every time you came into the temple of God, it was like you were returning to the garden of Eden. Like you were taking steps back into the garden of Eden. And as you hear the instructions about what the garden, or excuse me, the tabernacle was meant to look like. The golden lampstand surely meant to look like a tree of life. You got the showbread. You got the table meant to be a, a picture of God's, of God's uh, provision for his people, of his communing with his people. But there, separating the holy place, the place where only the priests could go and minister before God, and the holiest place, the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was known. Between those two places, we read, Exodus 26, 31, that there was a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, twisted linen with cherubim, skillfully, warm, skillfully worked into it. Surely you see the picture. That just as God had placed a cherubim at the east side of the garden to make sure men could not come in lest they die. God had placed this cherubim on the east side of the Holy of Holies to make sure men would not come into his presence lest they die. God's making a way. He's opening a door. He's setting a pattern. But things aren't yet what they were meant to be. We've not yet gotten back to Eden. And we read about the seriousness with which God carries this. It's not long after this, Leviticus 10, that we read about Nadab and Abihu. These are Aaron's sons. Leviticus 10 tells us that they came and they offered um, unauthorized fire before the Lord. We don't know what that means. I've heard all manner of guesses as to what this means. Does it mean that they came in there drunk? Does it mean they came through the curtain at a time they weren't supposed to come through the curtain? Does it mean that they came in an unworthy way? Does it mean they came, continued to be covered by sin? They had not washed themselves. We don't know. But God is making clear, just because my presence goes with you, just because I've allowed you to draw near to me, do not think you can approach me on your own terms and live. Do not think you can draw near to me in your sin and live. And so fire left out from the altar. You know this, and it consumed these men. And Aaron, Scripture tells us, held his peace. And it's on the heels of that, 
It's in light of that that we see God instituting the Day of Atonement before his people. I know this is a lot of scripture, but you've got to see it. You've got to see the pieces of this beautiful story God has woven together. Leviticus 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. He says, tell your brother Aaron, even the high priest, tell him he doesn't just get to come waltzing into the holy place through the veil. If he does this, he will die because there my presence dwells. That place becomes holy because that's where I am. But then he begins to give instructions for how this man can come. We read about it in Hebrews 9, 6. That's a very succinct explanation. These preparations having thus been made, the preparations of all the things, the building of the tabernacle, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes, and he only once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. He says to the high priest, only under the cover of blood, only under sacrifice can you come. And only once a year can you come in to make atonement for the sins of the people. No one else can come. And the author of Hebrews is saying, because that veil stood... Because that curtain stood, because there was still separation, it makes clear to us that the way into the holy places was still not open. It was shut. It was closed. It was veiled. It was veiled. It was marked off. He's saying that this veil stood there is a statement of judgment even against God's people. It's a constant reminder of their sin. Every time one of these priests, these men who had been set apart and anointed unto God. Every time they went in and reminded, we can't go into that place. It was a constant reminder, your sins have not yet been dealt with. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of man. The payment hasn't been made. The relationship can't be fully restored until something is done to deal with the guilt of your sin and the wrath of God. That this gift from God. This act of worship, this pattern where man can draw near. It was a constant reminder, it's not done yet. It's not finished yet. But there was still something left to be done. If we were to recover what was lost in Eden. If we were to draw near and walk with him in the coolness of day in the garden. And tell me, surely your heart longs for that. Please tell me that the thought of walking with God in the garden of Eden doesn't cause you like Adam and Eve to want to go and hide your nakedness and your shame. Tell me that you know enough of his goodness and his promises in Christ Jesus. That makes your heart leap for joy. That you long for a walk with God. And his curtain stood and his veil stood and his court stood as a constant reminder. More has to be done as year after year it continued. The psalm that I read to you at the beginning of worship, Psalm 24, the same, the same thought is echoed in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy city? Do you remember how it goes on though? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only he with a clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not been stained by sin. Who has fulfilled all righteousness. Who has earned your blessing. Only your beloved son can come near. Only he can dwell on your holy hill. Only he can come in. And he has. 
That's what Hebrews is all about. Here's your homework for the week. Your homework for the week, I would encourage you to do it today while this is still fresh on your mind, to spend some portion of your Lord's Day reading through Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 and worshiping. Allowing your heart to rejoice. Allowing your hopes to soar. As you read words like this, Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Christ Jesus, the greater high priest, one that doesn't have to offer sacrifices because of his own sin, because he has no sin. When he came, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not a tent made with hands, that is not of this creation. The author of Hebrews is going to go on to say that these earthly things, they were a copy of the heavenly things. They were a shadow of the heavenly things. They were pointers toward the heavenly things. They weren't the real. The temple wasn't the real. They were copies of what was real, and what was real was in heaven. And Christ Jesus has entered into heaven, the holy of holies, the presence of God, the most holy place of heaven, that Christ Jesus has gone there. But he entered in once for all time into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That the blood of bulls and goats could never deal with the sins of man against an infinitely holy God, but he came on the basis of his own blood. He was both the high priest and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you understand? That's why he only had to go in one time and not year after year after year. But it doesn't have to constantly die. That's what we do at this table. It's not a repeated sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It was a once and for all sacrifice completed in him. And he walked into the holy place, not the temple, the holy of holies in heaven. He walked into the presence of God. He did so with us joined to him. Do you see it? Us in him. He walks into the holy of holies. He came to take us near to God. And it's in this way that he secured for us eternal redemption, a better priest with a better sacrifice in a better temple with better promises, with a better outcome for us. For Christ Jesus has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters in the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeated, repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of this age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see how it all comes together? Priests stood day after day and year after year making the same sacrifices. A constant reminder, the way's not open. Sin's not dealt with. We're not back at Eden yet. Do you see it? Christ Jesus comes in once and for all time, a better high priest, having offered his own body as the sacrifice to deal with the sins of men. He comes into the Holy of Holies. And what does he do? He sits down. At the end of a hard day, Having all the work accomplished, he says there's nothing left to be done to purchase your redemption. Is he still active? Oh, yes, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. But he sits down saying it's finished, it's done, there's nothing left. And we come to the words that David read, Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, in light of all of that, in light of all of that, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and with our bodies washed with pure water. 
Beloved, there are some of you that walked into this place with an evil conscience. A tool in the hands of the enemy convincing you that you've done too much. You've sinned too badly. You've run too long. You've dishonored him too deeply. And you can't possibly draw near to God. Now, drawing near is more than a physical thing. It's your heart, as I said, coming near to God. Tangibly, physically, you will come to this table. He invites you to draw near physically, but it means nothing if your heart is not drawn near. And your heart won't draw near as long as the devil is using your sins against you. He's saying you can draw near because you can know. No matter what you feel, you can know that your sins have been dealt with once and for all. God's made that clear by what? By tearing the veil in two. As long as the veil stood, we knew our sins hadn't been dealt with. We knew the way wasn't open. But when the veil was torn, when the temple was destroyed, he was announcing for heaven, it's done. I'm sitting down. Now you come. I've cleansed you. I've washed you. I've made you pure. So my hope for some of you this morning is that you'll be like that prodigal son who comes running who comes running to the table of God because you can't wait to throw yourself upon his mercy. And you know he is your father and he loves you and he will greet you. He will run to you. He will run to meet you and he will welcome you in his arms. He will set before his people a banquet to celebrate that my son who once was lost, now he is found. These little tidbits are going to have to be enough. Because physically we're not in the holy of holies. Physically heaven has not come to dwell on earth. But there's coming a day. That's the promise. That's the promise we see at the end of this book is a return to Eden, but better. Where there's no more tears and there's no more sorrow and there's no more pain and there's no more loss and there's no more death. And there's no need of a temple because the glory of God is there. Do you see it? That's what we're participating in this morning. And I pray that you know it. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that the way has been opened a new and better way through the veil that is the flesh of Christ Jesus our Lord and all that he has accomplished through the shedding of his blood, his resurrection. So help us to come with full assurance and confidence now. It's your son's precious name we pray.